Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Beyond Politics. We're broadcast on WKXLAM and FM. We're podcast wherever you find your podcasts. I'm your host, Paul Hodes, with my co-host, the irrepressible Matt Robeson. Well, recently, folks, we've entered a new phase, a new reality of the COVID-19 pandemic. It's just not clear exactly what that phase is or where we're going from here. But whenever we wonder what's happening with COVID, we think of Donald McNeil Jr. But for a good reason, because throughout much of the pandemic, for millions of readers and podcast listeners in the U.S. and around the world, Donald G. McNeil Jr. has been one of the most trusted, thoughtful, and clear explainers on the science of the coronavirus. He was the lead reporter on the COVID-19 pandemic for the New York Times, and he's been a guest with us on Beyond Politics twice now, each time delivering one of our most insightful and popular episodes. Don, welcome back to Beyond Politics. Thank you very much for inviting me. You wrote a recent article in which you start the article by describing a symposium held by the Columbia University Medical School. You attended, you spoke, and you say that you were struck as much by what was not said as by what was. What do you mean by that? Well, so this was a week-long symposium with many of the top people in, in, in the vaccine industry and, and in public health, you know, Rochelle Walensky of the CDC, Tom Frieden from the CDC, chief scientist of the WHO spoke, person who ran Operation Warp Speed and his British counterpart spoke and, and, and people from the industry. And this was focused on, not on testing, not on masks and not on politics, it was focused on vaccines. And I learned a lot, but I was very struck by three things that they did not talk about, that virtually no one talked about. One was you know, vaccine mandates. Nobody wanted to talk about mandates. It was a dirty word. And yet clearly this has been one of the major battlegrounds. And it's very clear that vaccine mandates work and they have worked since George Washington forced his army to be inoculated against smallpox back when he first took over as commander of the American troops. They worked in California in 2014 when they had the big Disneyland outbreak. They, vaccine mandates on school children is what has prevented us from having epidemics of, that kill kids of measles, of diphtheria, of whooping cough, of a number of other diseases that kids used to die of. You know, there was a reason we all used to have five kids in this country, and that was because you only expected to have three or four by the time adulthood came around. Now, most of us have one or two kids. Vaccines are protecting those children from the kinds of waves of death used to be. So that was one thing that wasn't talked about. There was no serious discussion, although there was some countering of it, of the notion of taking away vaccine patents and handing them over to other companies in poor, country, poor countries you know, that might make vaccines because it took a long time to get vaccines to those countries. We can go into why there wasn't much discussion of that if you like. And the third thing I was surprised by was that there was no, there was a lot of lamenting as to how much damage the anti-vaccine movement had done to distribution of vaccines during the pandemic and really how many people had died as a result of refusing to take the vaccines because of the lies spread by the movement. 
but there was just lamentations. There was nothing about fighting back. There was nothing about, hey, you know, you've got doctors out there, MDs who are saying that vaccines don't work or vaccines dangerous, take away their MD licenses. Where are the state regulatory boards? You know, where is any effort to point out that a lot of the most prominent anti-vaxxers are in it for the money? They sell vitamins, they sell ivermectin, they run clinics for, quote, vaccine-damaged children. They run <clears throat> anti-vaccine charities that, that collect money, that are 501c3 corporations that pay their salaries and stuff. It's, it's a, the anti-vaccine movement is not just a group of concerned mothers. It is an industry lobby. And there's just, just, just no talk of that. It's, a, it's, a, it's as if public health specialists have all just want to be doctors with nice bedside manners, and they want to be loved. And they've forgotten that to be a public health officer in the old days was like being a military officer. You were fighting a war. You were fighting a war against a virus that was killing Americans, and you were expected to get tough with, you know, the last tough Surgeon General we've had in the United States was C. Everett Koop, and he basically went tough against the Reagan administration by saying, no, I am going to talk about AIDS. In fact, I'm going to send a pamphlet to every household in America describing how you get AIDS and how you can prevent it. And at the time, you know, he was tough partially because he was willing to tell the truth to the American people about AIDS. Most of our Surgeon General since then, and most of our leaders have just have wanted to be nice. They wanted to give guidance. They wanted to sound scientific, but they didn't want to fight back. And I think that's a real problem. And it worries me about the next pandemic. If we handle the next one as badly as we handled this one, we're going to have another million Americans dead. I think that's a great jumping off point to what jumped out to me about your most recent article. One of the things that you do really well is you reflect some of the ambivalence and confusion and evolving thinking that I think we've all gone through, especially on COVID. You just do it with a ton more insight and knowledge than the rest of us. And so, you know, when you write, it isn't over. This is your, your first big subhead in the article. You point out that for those of us who are at least triple vaccinated or who have survived a bout with COVID, the virus is what the, the COVID denialists were saying it was two years ago. It's about as threatening as the flu. That's a, that's a good point that we've reached. And I think there is definitely a sense in America that we've kind of gotten to a phase where maybe we just treat this like everything else that's out there as long as you take the proper precautions. But on the other hand, you lay out several worries for why this threat is going to linger or come back even stronger. And I, I think that's, that's the other thing that's sort of weighing on people's minds. So what stands out to you about this moment and why we're sort of of two minds about this? We're sort of past it in a way but there's this, there's this looming threat that it could get even worse in the years ahead. I don't think it will get even worse in the years ahead. I, I, I didn't mean to raise that specter. It, the, many people at the, at the conference, at the symposium that I was covering, were trying to make the point that we in America are acting as if it's over. And, but in fact, it might not be over. You know, right now, Europe, at this conference was a, a couple of weeks ago, Europe was having a major wave of Omicron BA2. Well, we are now having a major wave of Omicron BA2, at least in the Northeast in this country. And we're having a hard time tracking it because people don't go in for PCR tests anymore. They, they often take home tests. But 
you know, I can tell it's going on because I can, you know, I read about more prominent people getting sick, like Nancy Pelosi and all the people who attended the gridiron dinner and my friends and neighbors, you know, and, you know, I've, everybody sort of tells me, hey, I've got COVID. And I hear, I, I absolutely saw a big uptick of that in, in early December when the first Omicron wave came around. And I've heard another uptick of that now recently. So that's already begun. China is about to lose control of its epidemic. Very clearly, I think it's very clear China is not going to be able to control, and they're going to have a massive, massive outbreak. They are 85 to 90% vaccinated, but the old are not vaccinated. The old are the vaccine resistors in China, paradoxically, and young kids are not vaccinated. So they're going to have a pretty devastating epidemic, I think, because Shanghai is very clearly getting out of control. People are people are running out of food. They're not as organized as they were when they did this in Wuhan. They shut down the second biggest city in the country, and people are screaming to get out. Nonetheless, and so China could produce more variants. I'm not that worried. The levels of immunity in this country are so high that even during the, the first Omicron wave and the second Omicron wave, lots of people I know got infected. Virtually no one was hospitalized. One doctor in his 70s I knew spent 18 hours in a hospital on oxygen. But it's nothing like it was back at the beginning of the epidemic when, you know, of you know, five people you heard of who got sick, you know, two or three of them got seriously ill, either either needing to be hospitalized or, you know, or, or really had their oxygen levels drop. And, you know, you know, and, and of course, I knew I did know some people who died. So we're not we're basically we're looking at a bad flu season now. And, and we can we can stand that. You know, I've ridden the subways without a mask, which you're really not supposed to do. But there have been times when I've oh, I forgot to put on my mask. I'm not as nearly as paranoid as I was, you know, two years ago because I've had four shots plus COVID. So I feel I'm pretty bulletproof. And I think most other people who've had, you know, shots plus COVID are, are, are pretty bulletproof. I don't think there's much to worry about now. You know, I'm just to, to follow up. I had COVID after I was vaxxed and I was boosted and I only spent one day thinking I was going to die. But luckily I, you know, I didn't take myself to the hospital and I, and I got through it. It was this incredible feeling that I'd never had with the flu. So so just anecdotally, when you catch when you catch this disease, it doesn't feel like the flu. It may be that we're gonna uh, eventually be treating it more like the flu, but people better get used to feel some 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 of us feeling a lot worse. When the, you the talk flu can about, be very serious, don't oh yeah, I mean yeah, the yeah. flu kills a lot of people each year. I mean it, the difference between a real flu. And the cold is like the difference between having a bad cold and people always say, I felt like I was hit by a truck. Uh, you know, bad flu can be can be bad. Yeah, well, I, I spent four days in bed, but luckily I got out. Here I am. I'm feeling pretty, pretty immune. And and reading, you know, yesterday reading in our little state of New Hampshire up to COVID cases on the rise again in New Hampshire and looking at the charts, both in New Hampshire and Maine, in the Northeast, we're starting to see this trend uh, on the way back up. W one of the one of the questions I had was, and you talked, you, you sort of, it follows on your comment about China losing control, is, it, is the virus now finding more and different hosts like white-tailed deer? And is that going to be the kind of problem that we now have to worry about, that the virus and its mutations will find new and different hosts even closer to home than the bats in the Wuhan market? Yes, the virus is finding new hosts, including white-tailed deer fishing. And as I left the river, when I saw a white-tailed deer hopping off, and I just looked at it and thought, 
COVID, Victor. Uh, but but look, th- this is normal. Flu circulates in pigs. You know, it's swine flu, but it's it was originally human flu. The H1N, the 1918 flu eventually got into the pig population. So you have a tendency for, you know, when, you, when, you, when, it, when it's in animals that are crowded really close together, like pigs, like chickens, like, you know, animals that we raise in, <clears throat> in barns. Where, so you can, you can have a virus that ricochets really fast through a population, faster through pigs than through deer, because we don't keep deer penned up in, in the feeding houses. You, you get a chance for mutations. Whether or not those are going to be more dangerous is, is really, you know, a matter of luck. It's it. I, I don't worry about it. It, it. You know, the more mixing vessels you have, the more reservoirs you have for any disease, the more likely. I mean, mutation is and, and evolution is partially a matter of numbers. The more likely you have to get something. And and of the many, many, many mutations you get, one may be bad. One or two may be bad. And so you're never happy when you see that a virus has found a new host, especially a host that we're in close contact with, like pigs or deer or cats and dogs. But, we, you know, we know cats and dogs can get COVID and yet no great, you know, kitty, kitty cat mutant has arrived to, to kill a lot of Americans. So I, I don't, it's something to be aware of. It's something to do surveillance for, but it's not something to panic about. One of the things you point out in your article is that the death toll that we've logged so far about the, the official ones, about 6 million worldwide, may be a vast undercount. And it kind of speaks to the overall theme we are in a very weird place where clearly mentally Americans at least are mostly done with COVID. They don't want to, they don't want to deal with mandates. They don't want to deal with masks. They don't want to deal with really any steps or any inconveniences. They, they want to just treat this as sort of a background thing that like the flu can be, can be very bad, but you just don't want to think about. But it, what, what really struck me was you kind of roll that forward in the article and you say the vaccination schedule for young children has been disrupted by COVID. And you say that millions of young people may now be unprotected against measles, whooping cough, diphtheria. And those things are far more dangerous for children than COVID is. So it, it just- what, what, that's We're talking about in, in, not in the United States, we're talking about in very poor countries. Worldwide. I mean, I'm talking about Africa, you know, Indonesia, you know, the, the poor parts of Africa, Latin America and Asia, not, not, in, not in the Western countries. Those, those, well, that's an interesting distinction. I, yeah. I mean, I guess what I'm, what I'm driving at is that what what jumped out to me about that was a sense that going forward, we're still grappling with all kinds of ramifications from COVID that we not only haven't really thought about, but that we don't really want to think about. We're, we're very much kind of in America putting this out of sight and out of mind. And we don't seem really ready to engage with the worldwide problem as seen by the unwillingness of Congress to pass more funding for vaccination and, and, and other measures overseas. Yes, that's true. I'm not sure that passing more funding for vaccination overseas is going to make much difference. Vaccine, not vaccine resistance, but vaccine apathy is very high. I mean, there's been very low uptake in Africa, 15% or so of Africa. It varies enormously from country to country. Even Rwanda and Burundi next door to each other have hugely different, because basically in Rwanda, people trust the government on health issues and in Burundi is, is, is total chaos. But, but a lot of people are just not getting the vaccine. Countries like South Africa have said, look, don't send us any more vaccine. We can't get the doses into people's arms. That's a combination of real logistical problems outside the major cities where you have power outages. It's, it's hard, to, you know, it's hard to, unfortunately, we're still using things like Moderna and Pfizer in those countries. And that kind of doesn't make any sense because you have to have 
super cold refrigerators that don't normally exist in those cases, even in capital cities. And now once you get outside the cities, you know, it's not like there's a CVS on every corner in Africa. I mean, it's very easy to get a vaccine here. It's very, it, you know, in, 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 a lot of, in a lot of places, even in small towns, you have to go down to the local health center and you have to get in line. You may end up waiting three hours and it may take you two hours in a minibus taxi to get to a health center. So you begin to think, is this really worth it? Or do I have bigger worries? You know, am I more worried about malaria? Am I more worried about, you know, working on my farm today because I want to get food on my the table for my kids? So that's why there's a lot of kind of sense in, in, in some countries that even if there was vaccine, people wouldn't take it. I'm more worried about our planning for the future. I mean, there, there will be future pandemics. Hopefully there won't be as big as this one in my lifetime, but I, you know, in my kids' lifetimes, I wouldn't be surprised. And if we don't do better this time, it's not acceptable to have lost a million Americans. I mean, we didn't have to lose a million people. The world did not, you know, 6 million people in the world is the official count. It's probably more like 16 to 20 million, it's probably 18 million, you know, triple the real count. Now, a lot of this is excess mortality, people who died of other things, you know, people who, who died of cancer when they might have gotten treatment. There were suicides. There were, you know, gunshot deaths and things that, that raised the total excess mortality. We won't know the real toll of this epidemic until it's completely over. And we just count how many people aren't there anymore that had to COVID-19 never come along, probably would be in the population now. But the vast majority of it was deaths due to COVID. And you know, we had a great vaccine. We had a great vaccine very early on. Had we gotten acceptance of that vaccine out faster? I mean, the reason it wasn't rolled out faster is because people didn't accept it. People refused. And that to me is a disaster. You know, lots of people died who didn't need to die. And we're, that's one thing as a public health leader, you know, leaders are supposed to avoid, you know, deaths among your own troops. In your article in Medium, two surprising things in your section on vaccines. One is that despite all the attention on the mRNA vaccine, the vaccine that has probably saved the most lives around the world is the Oxford AstraZeneca one. And the other is that we've been doing great producing vaccines, but not doing great on distributing them. Could you could you talk a little bit about that and also explain why the solution of getting rid of patents and letting local production happen won't work. Okay, <clears throat> these are two separate questions. So in the United States, we've tended to focus on the Pfizer vaccine, the Moderna vaccine, and to some extent, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which is sort of seen as an also ran and you really ought to get a booster of one of those. That ignores what's really going on around the world. There are actually 36 different vaccines in use around the world. 10 of them are approved by the WHO. I mean, lots of countries have made vaccines. Iran has made several vaccines. Cuba's made its own vaccine. Canada has made its own vaccine. Japan has made its own vaccine. Kazakhstan has made its own vaccine. Only 10 of them are approved by the WHO, but that includes Chinese vaccines and Russian vaccines. And that is because they have been shown to work well enough. The, What's happened is that this kind of cult has grown around the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines because they, they definitely are the best, but they're not easy to use in out-of-the-way places. They, they require much more refrigeration and they, they just are not practical a lot of places, but countries reject other vaccines because they've heard that these are the best, they want the best, and they don't really realize the fact that they could probably do better with other vaccines, be more effective. The Oxford AstraZeneca one is made in, I think it, it, it's made... In England, in Europe, I think in Belgium, and also in India under contract with the, the, the Serum Institute of India. And I think it's been approved in 159 countries. And by one measure, it probably has saved two times as many lives as any other vaccine. 
And actually, if I went back and thought about that statistic, it might be save twice as many lives as all the other vaccines put together. But I, I got to go back and I'd have to go back and look that up. But it's been the most effective vaccine in the world. And, and, and yet it never even got approved in the United States, which is too bad because we, we panicked over reports of, of side effects, which actually turned out to be, in the end, quite minor. One of our problems in the United States is we do not have enough data because we don't have centralized health records as they do in Israel as they do in England, as they do in a number of other countries, we don't have centralized health records that allow us to produce, to, to spot a side effect when a side effect begins to happen and to know what the normal background rate of that side effect is in the population. For example, one of the vaccines produced bouts of myocarditis, heart inflammation in young men. Well, there is a certain background rate of heart inflammation among young men anyway. Some guys trying out for their football team suddenly collapse with heart inflammation. When you when you you have to know the background rate, and if you don't, you know, for a subset of the population, so women getting blood clots, women who have, you know in their thirties and forties getting blood clots was a problem with the Johnson vaccine, but some women in their thirties and forties get blood clots anyway. You have to know, because if you don't have the data, then the anti-vaxxers get a hold of the the small number of incidents you have, and they blow it out of proportion, and there's no way to counter them. That was one of the problems, you know, many years ago when. Andrew Wakefield produced his paper saying that, that measles vaccines cause autism. It took 18 months until a country could produce enough data. And I think the first study was out of Finland where they said, look, we looked at our population. We know what happened. Everybody's been vaccinated in this country and the rates of autism stayed exactly the same before and after you know, we, we went with this measles vaccine. You, know, you, you need good data in order to be able to counter the lies. Okay, so that, sorry, that's some of the background of the vaccines and that there are many more of them around um, and, and that many of them are better than we realize. You know, if I needed a booster and all my, my only option was Sputnik, I probably would have taken it. I might've taken one of the Chinese vaccines as a booster. There, there are several vaccines from China and some are better than others, but you know, they might've given me a broader, a broader swath of protection than having just the Pfizer or the Moderna over and over and over again, because those vaccines are very similar. Mixing and matching turned out to be some people were scared of it. In fact, it turned out to be better. You got a got a broader antibody response. So on the on the other question you asked about why not just take the patents away from the big vaccine companies and hand them over to vaccine makers in Brazil or Cuba or South Africa or others, and and the answer is the hard part of making a vaccine. First of all, most vaccines have like twenty patents on them, not just one or two. They have all these sub patents. You know, like the the, the nanoparticles the little tiny lipid molecules that the mRNA vaccines are based on <clears throat> have several different patents controlling them because different people invented different parts. The trick of stabilizing mRNA so it doesn't break down in the body as soon as it's injected the way a reg regular RNA does is, is also has patents on it. So it's, it's not like you're just transferring one patent and here you go, look it up in the patent office. But more importantly, the know-how to make 100 doses of vaccine in a lab is totally different from the know-how to make 200 million doses day after day after day in a totally contamination-free way. And that requires a great deal of knowledge of vaccine making. It requires a lot of medical talent, laboratory talent, engineering talent, something like that. and it requires infrastructure, you know, completely pure water, steady supplies of electricity, you know, de delivery, uh, on-time delivery of, of uh, materials and stuff that may not exist in a lot of poor and middle-income countries in the world. And so it's not that easy. You can't run a vaccine plant and only run it during a crisis. You can't mothball a vaccine plant. You have to be cranking out vaccines, basically. So you have to keep the thing running. Otherwise, things break down, things rust, don't, things get repaired, and the plant becomes worthless. So it's not that easy. Also, as, as was pointed out, it's not very cost-effective to, to do it that way, because 
80% of the profits in, a, in vaccines come from the top dozen countries that have the most money. If you want to, you know, but to serve those countries, you don't need to make very many doses. You know, if the United States buys 20 million doses of vaccine each year or whatever for, for regular childhood vaccines, or, or what actually most, most plants make four or five million doses a year of any one vaccine, because that's the number of babies that are born in the United States each year. Well, if you want to run a factory that makes hundreds of millions of doses or even billions of doses <clears throat> at a time, you have to have those rich countries that are willing to pay 30 and $40 a dose of vaccine in order to be able to make tens of millions of more doses that you're going to sell at $1 a dose. So it's generally not very cost effective for a country like South Africa to try to, you know, a vaccine plant that only produces maybe two, three million doses a year. And it's certainly not efficient to try to make two, three million doses and then mothball the plant until the next crisis comes along. So really it makes more sense to incentivize the vaccine companies to make more doses, to build more production lines with the existing know-how that they have than it does to seize their patents and hand it over to people who can't do it. That's basically the argument. That's really interesting texture to that. I, I, it's, it, it just strikes me in public policy, especially how often you really have to dive below a hand-waving explanation into the details of how does this actually work in practice for an idea to unravel the way you just unraveled that. And that, anyway, that's, that's, that's really fascinating. You know, another thing that stood out to me from your most recent article is you draw a distinction that I, I guess I'd never really thought about before. Early on, when we were all kind of adjusting to the, to the news, of, of COVID, Paul and I did some shows where we talked about our experience, me as a staffer, him as a member of Congress, and what elected officials and what public health leaders can do early on in a crisis like this from a communication standpoint. And we talked a lot about credibility and trust. But in your article, you draw a distinction that success for a country in getting people vaccinated and getting them to generally adhere to science-based public health guidance it isn't about one system of government, democracy versus autocracy, because you point out that there have been successes and failures from countries that kind of fit into both of those categories. You say that the, the, the key differentiator is a very specific kind of trust. So could you just describe a little bit more of, of what you're observing here? Because it's just, it's a line of, of argument I really hadn't seen anywhere else before. Okay. So one of the arguments I was making at the at symposium that was, look, Trust is essential in order to get people to, to accept something, you know, something injected, something foreign injected into their body. Trust is essential. And trust cannot be surged. You can't all of a sudden say, okay, now it's time for you to trust us. And, and we'll, you know, take your word for it. Trust is not at the core of the nature of democracy. We have democracy because we like to vote out leaders when we have lost faith in them. All right. It's easier to establish to get obedience in an autocracy normally because you're stuck with a leader you've got. And they'll probably easily punish you for something. But it, so in a democracy, it's hard. But democracies have succeeded in getting people and autocracies have succeeded. So Scandinavian countries, Australia, New Zealand, Chile, Argentina, you know, and, and, you know, all did quite well at vaccinating their citizens. But so did Cuba, so did Vietnam, and so did China, although not among the old, interestingly, in China. On the other hand, there are autocracies that did very badly at vaccinating their citizens. Russia, notably, and most of Eastern Europe, the, the parts of the Soviet Union, have done very badly. The United States, our record is no better than Saudi Arabia's or Iran's. You know, we are, we are worse in vaccine acceptance than most of Western Europe. We are better than Eastern Europe and Russia. We're wor worse than that. And I think a lot of that has to do with how much trust 
the people have in the government's ability or willingness to look after their health. Because I've done reporting in Cuba, I've done reporting in Vietnam. These are not places where you have a whole lot of civil rights. These are places that lock up political dissidents. You don't have free speech. But people really do trust that the healthcare system is looking out for them. They really, I went to those countries because they were doing a good job of fighting AIDS, Cuba. They were doing a good job of fighting tuberculosis, Vietnam. And people have a sense. Now, in this country, we don't have a lot of trust in our healthcare system. The average citizen doesn't. Now, maybe the average well-educated, relatively wealthy citizen who's got you know, good health insurance and has found their family doctor paid for has a lot of trust in the system. But you know, Black Americans have the history of Tuskegee, and that was an enormous part early on. I mean, that was the U.S. public health system, you know, allowing thousands of men to die slowly, you know, deliberately in order to see the effect of the disease. That kind of legacy doesn't go away. But even if you put that aside, even the effort was, okay, forget it. It's not Tuskegee anymore. We have a healthcare system where we often feel that Congress sits around basically you know, waiting to be hired by the pharmaceutical industry, you know, as a lobbyist after they've left Congress, because, you know, we, we pay the highest prices for drugs in the world, we pay the highest prices for medical care. Many people in this country are uninsured, and Congress prevents us from doing what the other democracies in the world have done to lower drug prices, which is basically allowing Medicare and, and, and other large buyers to negotiate with the drug companies. And, and you know, the laws exist on the books. You can just tell the drug companies, and we have done it in the past. We did it to bear with uh, superfloxacin in the wake of the anthrax attacks. They wanted to charge $13 a pill when the government wanted hundreds of millions of doses. And the government said to Bayer, you want to keep selling aspirin in this country? <clears throat> you bring your price down to $1.50. And Bayer went, uh, okay, because the government is allowed to do that. You can take away patents. But we never, we never use our power over the pharmaceutical industry because Congress is so afraid of them. And as a result, people, a lot of Americans don't have that much trust in, particularly in the vaccine and pharmaceutical industry and the things. They may trust their family doctor, but they think, you know, these companies are just out to make money and they rush this thing into production because they know they're going to make a billion dollars. That is really erosive of trust and it's a problem. And the United States needs to do more to establish that the United States, whoever is in government in the United States, Republican or Democrat, needs to do more to assure the people of the United States we are looking out for your health. Well, you know, Paul, you're about to ask a question. I just want to point out to our listeners that when Donald McNeil says that the public perceives that the members of Congress are waiting around to get hired as pharmaceutical industry lobbyists, this, this literally happened. You're not just whistling Dixie here. The guy who was the chairman of the committee that oversaw the pharmaceutical industry, Billy Towson, became the CEO of the pharmaceutical lobby as soon as he left Congress. This is you're not just making stuff up here. So anyway, Paul, go ahead. Well, wait a second. My trust let, can't let, be surged. Yeah, let's let, let's just be clear. That was the deal that got him to finally change his vote to prevent the government from negotiating for drug prices on Medicare. He was a holdout till the early hours of the morning, and that would have tanked the effort to protect the pharmaceutical company essentially monopoly. But but clearly the deal was, Billy, Billy, we're going to grease the skids. You vote with us. And tomorrow you can run this. You can run the show. And, and that worked. So, Donald, one of I, I just want to dig a little bit deeper because I think this is it, it's a fascinating question. When I was campaigning for my for Blungeon campaign for the U.S. Senate in 2010, I the debate around Obamacare was swirling, and 
I re remember clearly, and I, I probably have told this story on this show before, but I remember going to, it was outside Hillsboro, New Hampshire. There was a seafood restaurant and I was doing what congressional or Senate candidates or candidates in New Hampshire do anyway. I was circulating throughout the restaurant, shaking hands and introducing myself to people who just wanted to eat their fried clams. And, <laughs> and, and so that is probably one of the most difficult campaigning that you it's really tough campaigning it's it's in the heart of trying to ingratiate yourself to people who don't want anything to do with you and i came upon a lovely couple who were eating a giant plate of fried clams and introduced myself and the conversation turned to healthcare, and what the gentleman said to me was i don't want no government take over my health care and I just want to make sure the government keeps its damn hands off my Medicare. Now that <laughs> that keep your, that, keep your damn that, government hands off my Social Security check. That know, that's it. It's the it's the it's the conundrum about trust, I guess, writ writ in small in small letters, right down to a person who didn't trust their government in any phase of its being of its ability to handle healthcare, including Medicare, which of course is a government program. Now that said, 10 years, 12 years on, we are have been in this incredibly dysfunctional, increasingly toxic and nasty political environment in which truth and science seem to have have been have been extreme casualties so so how in that in that context is it is it the debate over obamacare that that illustrates this lack of trust or is it the political effort for power that has driven the lack of trust it, what's the cart and what's the horse i am constantly astonished by the capacity of people to believe what to me seem like incredibly obvious lies. I mean, how is it that in Ukraine right now, the Russian flagship just blew up and sank? And the Russians are literally saying it was an accident. It was a, you know, it was an ammunition fire on board. It had nothing to do with the fact that we were attacking another country and they were firing missiles at the ships. And they are being believed in some quarters. And it's, my, you know, it's kind of my feeling about vaccines, too. I mean, people, the vaccines, there's so much evidence that the vaccines work. And people don't realize that there have been many vaccines that have rejected, been rejected because they don't. And yet they're just willing to believe because of certain authority figures that they tend to admire, you know, whether it's Alex Jones or Donald Trump, they just believe that things are not what they are, just like believing that warships will just kind of blow up on their own accidentally. And, you know, it, it's, and Obamacare was the perfect example of that. I mean, here you had something we knew, we had known for decades that there were millions of Americans who did not have health insurance, either because they'd lost their jobs or because they worked at corporations like McDonald's and didn't offer people health insurance. They were working two or three jobs. They were desperate for health insurance. Those of us who were on Medicare, more or less pretty happy with our health insurance. And, you know, I paid into it all my life. Now I'm getting to get the benefits of it. That's great. But for, for the rest of us, for people who were under 65 and who were working two or three jobs, it would seem to be an absolute no-brainer that you'd, you know, you'd want to give them health insurance. And yet 
because it was done by a Democratic president, and particularly because it was done by a Democratic president who was Black, instead of calling it the Affordable you know, Medicines Act, which uh, was what it was, they labeled it Obamacare, 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 as if that was a dirty word, because he doesn't mean it wasn't Medicare, it was Obamacare. It was like, you know, might I sign up or might, might many Americans sign up for something known as Trump care? I don't know. Possibly not. You know, your general feeling is that Trump don't care. So, so something called Trump care might be make you a little, a little suspicious of it. But I mean, and, and that, that sort of repositioning of the, of the other side has been, to my mind, ridiculously successful. I, you know, I, I had an uncle who wrote a book about positioning, The Battle for Your Mind, it was called. And um, he talked about how Avis made itself by repositioning Hertz as number one, we're number two, we try harder. In other words, you don't brag about yourself, you sort of reposition the enemy as, as you know, the, the, the opponent as, as, as the bad guy, as the, you know, in the same way that the, that early Macintosh ad repositioned IBM as the, you know, the 1984 people and made the, the, you know, the Apple seem like the cool new upstart. You know, the Republicans have successfully repositioned the Democrats again and again and again, and the Democrats are utterly incompetent at fighting back. They're much worse at messaging than, than the Republicans are. And I just kind of look at them and think, can't you guys figure out some weakness on the other side and exploit it? I mean, that's the nature of our politics, kind of incompetent, fragmented party that nonetheless gets a little bit more than half the vote most of the time is kind of the way we do things in this country. So yeah, I'm constantly amazed at the lies people believe. And, and I, you know, I thought the Lincoln Project did an amazing job of sort of repositioning the Republicans, but that was, you know, that was an internal Republican think tank doing a better job at, you know, at, at it than any of the Democrats could do. Look, I should stay out of this. Politics is not my area. We should go back to talking viruses, but I'm, I'm just, just in short, I'm, I'm amazed at how easily people believe obvious lies. And I'm constantly smacking my head. I did not think it would ever get this bad. I never thought a million people would die because I thought people would see, wow, that family got vaccinated, nobody died. This family resisted the vaccines and grandma died and Aunt, you know, Matilda was in the hospital for, for 90 days. Maybe I should get the vaccine. It, it seems obvious, but it didn't. It didn't work like that. Well, our listeners can't see me laughing and I'm only laughing to keep myself from crying because even though you're more of a science and, and health writer, there's nothing you're saying about politics that Paul and I disagree with. Let's bring all of this uh, full circle as we, as we wrap up here the whole thrust of of your article is you know better luck next time but you're not that optimistic about how we're positioned for next time so kind of in the final analysis how much trouble are we in for next time because you know you were saying a moment ago in your kids lifetimes i mean my kids are younger than your kids it's almost a certainty that within their lifetimes they're going to face another pandemic how worried should we be about the next time it all depends on how bad the pandemic is I mean, don't forget, we have faced other pandemics in our lifetimes. H1N1, the swine flu in 2009, was a true pandemic, but it turned out to be not a very dangerous virus. We did make a vaccine against it. We actually had a really good response. Nobody remembers. That was Obama's first crisis in office, and they made a vaccine fairly rapidly. Turned out the virus was not nearly as bad as we expected. The death rate that had been predicted from Mexico turned to be a lot lower than we expected. When it came back in the fall, it was not a big deal. You know, thank goodness, because the vaccine, you know, there was... Some, but not enough for everybody. But, you know, so my worry is that probably whatever comes along is going to take a vaccine to fight it. Probably won't take a pill. If the anti-vaccine lobby is able to raise the same terrors about vaccine again, as they did this time, and they don't get serious pushback, and they don't 
think, wow, if I spread lies, I might go to jail or I might lose my medical license or I might lose my tax deductibility for my, you know, children's defense charity or whatever, you know, they want to call it. Then they're going to spread the same lies again and we're going to have the same confusion and response again. And as a result, a lot of people who don't get vaccinated will. I'm fairly confident that if we make a bad vaccine, that we'll catch it pretty early on. If you understood the testing, you'd see that, wow, it, you know, it actually is very careful levels of testing on on you know everything from mice to ferrets to monkeys and then to a small number of humans and stuff. So we 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 have a very good production of vaccine, but the fighting disinformation is a real failure of of modern America. And you know and and, and there were some particular incompetences you know like the failure of the CDC to make a good test so that we would know exactly where the virus was. That was a major major mistake. There's a bad leadership at the CDC. And I hope we'll do better next time. But I'm not I'm not confident because I like I said in the article I don't see us fighting back against the flaws that cost us so many lives this time. Veteran science writer and podcast guest and budding political analyst, apparently, Donald G. McNeil Jr. <laughs> Thanks so much for walking us through this. And we're, we're looking forward to your next article. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me.